Well, at the risk of just doing way too much this morning, we're going to dive into John 4. But uh, I'll do it briefly because it's a story we're familiar with. Um, but it kind of fits where we are in the sort of feeling that we have this morning about just coming before God with a whole lot of questions. And the story is one that we're relatively familiar with, right? It's the story of the woman at the well. She's part of this collective of the ordinary that we've been talking about all summer. And on many levels, she's like the perfect definition of it, right? We don't even know her name. She's got a lot more failures. That's what we know her for. We know her for her failures rather than her faith. Um, she's got a lot of questions for Jesus. And she's got this sort of condescending piece of her heart that just doesn't really want to believe what he has to say. And uh, we're going to see Jesus speak into the middle of that. What I want to look at this morning is this interaction that Jesus has with her. They have a back and forth, like four or five different times in this little conversation they have. They go back and forth. And Jesus comes from an angle of the eternal, <clears throat> and she comes from the angle of the temporary or the worldly. And they just miss each other. But it's almost as if this woman doesn't really want to hear or see what Jesus is offering which is where I feel like my life lines up a lot of times, right? Like I just don't necessarily, in the midst of my questions and struggle, want to hear what God has to say. But what God has to say is life-giving. And so I want you to turn your attention to John chapter 4, um, chapter 1 through like 23 or something. I'm going to paraphrase the first part because I want to get to the interaction that they actually have. But the first 11 or the first 10 or so verses <clears throat> are the ones that most of us are really familiar with. They're, they kind of lay the, <clears throat> excuse me, the foundation for this encounter of Jesus is having with the woman at the well. And so we know that Jesus is at this place, chapter 4 in John, where he's getting a lot of attention. His ministry is kind of getting growing attention, and there's a lot of opposition to it among the Jewish leaders and Pharisees. In fact, John 1 through 3 tells us, that or 4, 1 through 3, tells us that the Pharisees were going concerned <clears throat> because Jesus' ministry was getting bigger than John the Baptist's. And they thought John the Baptist was kind of a problem. And now Jesus' ministry is actually getting more attention. More people are being baptized. He's got more followers. Like John the Baptist isn't really, <coughs> excuse me, isn't really the problem. It's now becoming Jesus. So Jesus' and disciples learn this, and they decide that they need to go ahead and leave the area of Judea and head to Galilee. Now, a quick kind of geography lesson for you, if you think about ancient Palestine, is only about 120 miles long, okay, from north to south. And there were three real main areas in there. There was Judea, which is the main area to the south. There was Galilee, which was the main area to the north. And there was Samaria, which ran smack dab in the middle. On the west boundary was the Mediterranean Sea. On the east boundary was the Jordan River. And that's kind of what ancient Palestine looked like, right? A little bit different than modern-day Israel, but pretty much the same. Kind of big, three big chunks. Boundaries were a little different, but the idea is the same. 120 miles from top to bottom. Pretty shallow across the sides. Not real big. But... The way that you traveled through the area was that in order to get from the, the north, Galilee, to Judea, you had to go through an area called Samaria. And if you remember from all of our conversations about this over the years, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Um, they really despised them. They despised them for a couple of reasons. One, they despised them because they were a mixed race. Uh, the Samaritans were a result of a group of Jews that disobeyed God and intermarried with the pagans when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. So thousands of years before, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, God said don't intermarry. They went ahead and intermarried, and they created a, a mixed-blood group of people that are known as the Samaritans at this point in time. So the Jews saw them as a mixed race. They saw them as unclean, and they couldn't stand them. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. They wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't go near them. Um, they wouldn't even walk through their country. In fact, the Jewish people, when they traveled, would go about 20 miles round trip out of the way, cross the Jordan River, 
all the way back around <clears throat> to get to uh, either Judea or if they were going north to Galilee, just so they didn't have to deal with the Samaritans. They put their foot in the country. They believed they were unclean. They wouldn't have had anything, any contact with them. They also despised them because the Samaritans didn't really believe in the same God, even though they said they worshipped the same God as the Israelites. The uh, Samaritans believed that the only books of the actual, that were actually Scripture were the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of it was not Scripture. Uh, so the writings and uh, the prophets and all those things were, were not really from God, and they've had their idea of God just based on these five books, and the Jews hated that as well. So uh, that's actually, we're going to see how that pops up here. So, so it says that Jesus had to go to, from Judea to Galilee, and it says that he had to go through Samaria. Actually, the term there is that he must go through Samaria, which is not really true at all. In fact, no Jews had to go through Samaria. They all went around it. But Jesus' uh, sort of must lied more in uh, mission than it did in geography because we know that Jesus went all the places that nobody else would go. And so he travels straight through Samaria, right, which we all kind of know part of the story. And as he's traveling through Samaria, he comes to this town called Sychar, which is a place where Jacob's well was, a very famous well. It had been there for about 2,000 years. Jacob gave it to Joseph. Um, had a very significant kind of, as you can imagine, Old Testament significance there. And it was one of the deepest water wells in the area. It's actually still there to this day. It's one of the only sites in the Holy Land that's not disputed, right? So like every place in the, you go in the Holy Land, we were there a year or so ago, it's like, this is a place where Jesus like put his feet. There's like, no, his feet's over here. He dropped his cards over here and this is whatever. It's like going to, in New Mexico, you'll find Billy the Kid's grave like 11 places. And so everybody's got Billy the Kid. You're like, oh, I thought he was over here. No, no, we got him. Well, in the Holy Land, it's the same way. Everything's kind of disputed because it's really hard after 2,000 years to be like, no, this is the place where Jesus sat on the stump. And so, um, but the, the well, it's really hard to fake that. And so they kind of know. So it's one of the most undisputed places in the Holy Land. And Jacob's well is there to this day. You can go and it's a very significant kind of place. Well, Jesus shows up at this well. He's tired. And it says that he sat down and leaned against it. And the disciples went into town to buy food. So here we see this sort of full humanity of Jesus and he leans against this well. It's noon. John tells us that it's the sixth hour. It's noon. And a woman comes to draw water at the well, Samaritan woman. And Jesus sees her coming to draw water at the well. And he says, excuse me, would you give me a drink? Unheard of for a lot of reasons. And she recognizes that and says, yeah, you can't really ask me for a drink. And we're going to kind of pick up right in the middle of their interactions, right? She says, you can't ask me for a drink. Why would you do that? And Jesus looks at her and says, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would be actually asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. And we recognize that there was a lot of um, messiness in this interaction, right? We, we talked at length about this a couple of years ago. We're going to just brush over it today and get on with some other stuff. But the fact that Jesus would talk to a woman is, is kind of culturally would have been really different. She was a Samaritan woman. Uh, he wouldn't have spoken to a Samaritan woman if he was a good Jew. She was really relegated as a person to the shadows because we'll learn more about her, but her life is a real mess. And uh, she's coming to draw water at noon instead of the morning and the evening time when the other women would come and draw water. So obviously she was trying to avoid contact there. Uh, Jesus asked her for a drink out of her jar. No Jewish person would have ever touched the jar of Samaritan, much less put their lips on it because it would have made them ceremonially unclean. All these things Jesus is doing. And she's rightly saying, well, you're a Jew. Like, you can't ask me these things. And he says, yeah, but if you knew who I was, you would be asking them of me and I would give you something so much better. And so we're going to pick up in verse 11 and look at just a few of these back and forth exchanges, starting at that very point where she says, you can't ask me for that. And he says, if you knew who I was, I would give you living water. 
and we're going to look at their exchange. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to go through these kind of quickly this morning because I, I, I want you to hear them. Lord, I do thank you that in the midst of all that we have going on this morning, we're going to encounter your word, which is timeless and perfect. It is without fault. And God, I believe today, some 2,000 years later, it speaks directly to us. I believe that your word is living and active, that it is true, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart as you tell us. And so, Lord, we take a few minutes this morning and we just say, teach us, empower us, correct us, rebuke us, whatever it needs, whatever our hearts need, Lord. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning, just for the next few minutes, maybe 10 minutes or so, just ask the Lord to teach your heart. We do this each week. We want to be reminded that we're not just here for ourselves. We want to be a community that prays for one another. Pray for someone beside you. Even if you don't know their name or you're like, that person, I don't know who they are, just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. I say this each week. Everything that unfolds around here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be someone that loves to see God move in the life of other people. So, Lord, for the next few moments, speak to our hearts through your word. Teach us, correct us, encourage us, empower us through your word in the resurrected name and person of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to look at verse 11, and there's about four little exchanges. I'm going to go through them really quickly, I promise. But I want you to see this woman and Jesus having, and they're coming from totally different perspectives, right? Like deep, deeply different perspectives. Let's take a look together. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 11. So Jesus had just said, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. Uh, you'd be asking me for drink, and I'd give you living water. And this is what she says. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, <clears throat> and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herd? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up, to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped here on this mountain, but the Jews claim the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming and uh, when you worship the Father in spirit, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the type of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So there's a bunch of little different back and forth that I want you to pay attention to here. So here's this woman leaning, Jesus leaning against the well. And he says, give me a drink. She says, you can't ask me for a drink. And uh, he said, no, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. And they're talking about two totally different things, right? And I'd give you living water. So she looks at him and she says, sir, right? Very polite, kind, sir. um, You don't even have anything to draw water. So if I were to ask you for a drink, 
what are you going to draw it with? Right? You had to bring your own bucket. There's not like a community bucket. You brought it and you lowered it down. He looks Jesus over and she's like, I couldn't ask you for a drink if I wanted to because you don't even have anything to draw water from. Plus, what are you really saying? This is Jacob's well who gave it to Joseph. And for 2,000 years, this water has supplied him, his children, their herds, their livestock, us. Are you saying that you're greater than Jacob? Like you have a different water, a better water than this? Right? That's kind of what she's saying. Essentially what she's telling Jesus is, who do you think you are? And it's kind of a valid question from a temporary kind of worldly point of view, right? Like you've got water better than Jacob's water? For 2,000 years, this water's not only fed and watered his family and his kids and their livestock, but our livestock and us. Like he is Jacob. This is Jacob's well. Who in the world are you? Jesus replies to her, right, from a completely different plane and way of thinking. He replies to her and said, look, everyone who drinks of this well, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. But you will have this water welling up in you to eternal life. So he says, yeah, sure, Jacob's a really great guy. He's a really important guy, trust me. Um, I know. Um, And he says, but there's one common thing about everybody that drinks from this well. Jacob, his sons, their flocks, you, your families, all those things. Everyone who drinks from this well will come back because they're thirsty. So thirst will always reoccur. As great as Jacob was, as great as this well is, as deep as it well as well is, everyone who drinks of it will be thirsty. But he said, if you drink of the water that I give you, right, the, the water that I give you, this living water, you will never thirst again. In fact, what you will have is this <clears throat> spring welling up inside of you that will lead to eternal life. It leads to eternal life. And that phrase welling up is a really interesting one, right? Because it's actually only used three times in the entire New Testament. Uh, The other two are both in the book of Acts. One in the early goings, chapter 3. One later on in chapter 14. And they both are used when Peter in the first sense, Paul in the second sense, walk by a guy who is crippled and they heal him. First time happens outside the temple. Peter tells him to get up and walk. Says the guy leapt up. Same Greek phrase there. Sprung up, leapt up, leapt up, jumped up. Same thing happens with Paul. He's on one of his journeys, comes across a guy who's crippled, heals him, jumps up and leaps up. What Jesus is saying essentially here using that same phrase is that there's something so magnificent about the water that I provide, right? This life-giving eternal water that it will lead your life to this leaping wellspring of life inside of you that has no end. So they're, they're talking about these two completely different things, right, which often happens with Jesus. Jesus is talking about something much deeper and better, and we're stuck talking about something on the surface. And we're saying, how are you going to do this? And God's saying, trust me. And we're saying, but God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And Jesus is saying, you haven't seen anything yet, right? Because if you trusted me and believed me, I would not only supply for your temporary thirst, but I would provide for your deeper need, which is where most of us really want God to provide us for our temporary thirst, as we're going to see her say, in just a minute, and God is saying, I've got something so much bigger in store for you than just coming back to the same well and drawing water. So listen to her next reply. She says this. <clears throat> she says, sir, again, right, I'm going to use my kind of, sir, give me this water so that when I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So she says, thinking completely again on the temporary, okay, that sounds pretty good. I want that water, but here's why I want it. I want it because I don't want to come back here anymore, and I don't want to have to draw water from this well. So basically what she's saying to Jesus is, sir, can I have this water so my life will be easier and less painful? Because the ease of having to, and we actually saw a video, right, like 
drawing water was not a process where you lived next to the well. You came from miles around. You drug your bucket. <clears throat> you drew water, and you walked it all the way back. Or in these cases, they would use these giant ceramic jars, and they would walk all the way back, usually twice a day. Once early in the morning while it was still cool, once in the evening it was cool. And it was typically a woman's role in that period in time to go and get the water for the day. Cook with, bathe with, clean with, all those things. It was hard. It was heavy. It was brutal. She didn't want to do that. We find something interesting out about this woman, right? She comes to draw water at noon when no one else was around. Now we're going to learn why um, she's actually got quite a life. Uh, her life is relegated some level to the shadows of sorts. She doesn't come with the other women that probably walk from the village and come together for safety. They always traveled in little groups like that because it was safer. To walk from your village alone as a woman was a very dangerous thing to do 2,000 years ago. And you didn't do it in the middle of the day because it was just stinking, well, like it was going to be today. It was a hot one. But there's probably a reason why she came at noon when no one was there, when there wouldn't be anybody around. Because her life was an out, one of an outcast. We're going to learn in just a second, as we just heard, that she's had five different husbands. Who knows why or how. Maybe they all passed away or maybe she just hopped around. And the guy that she's not with right now is not, or the guy she's with right now is not even her husband. Essentially what she's kind of saying to Jesus is, I would give anything that I have to come back here. Not just because I don't want to carry water, but because every time I come here, I'm reminded that I'm in this thing completely and totally alone. Right? We're taking a little bit of a leap there, but most likely she's got some version of that tied up in her. Like, I would love to not have to come back to this crowd. So can you make my life easier and less painful? And of course, Jesus does exactly what Jesus does. And he says, go get your husband and come back. She says, I don't have one, which is true. Not the whole truth, but it's true. And Jesus says, I know. You've had five, and the one you're with is not your husband. So she says, Jesus, make my life easier and less painful. And what does Jesus do? He asks the question right in the middle of her greatest source of hurt. Not to punish her or hurt her more, but to show her that she has a deep need, which is often what God does to us. In the middle of us crying out saying, God, make my life easier and less painful. <clears throat> I would love to never have to do that again or deal with that person or have to recognize this flaw in me or deal with this sinful behavior or whatever it is. God, make it easier. And God is not concerned with relieving all of our temporary struggles and hurt. He wants us to see our deeper need for him. And so he asks a question right into the middle of it. Always. And he does it in us all the time. Okay, I can give you that, but I want you to go get your husband knowing full well what her answer would be. God is always interested in us seeing our deeper need for him than he is with making life a little easier for you. So he says, go get your husband. And she's exposed at that point in time. She either lies to this guy or the truth comes out. And so she's completely and totally exposed. And that's a pretty vulnerable place to be. Standing in front of this person who you don't really know him, but you know he's some kind of powerful prophet because he just told you your entire life. And you're standing there, probably not making eye contact because you're a Jewish woman and he's just exposed your deepest pain. 
and you're just left there with him. So what does she do? Well, she tries to change the subject, right, like any good one of us would do. Jesus says, go get your husband. You don't have one. She says, hey, I got a question. She says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. You're you're good at what you're doing here. I got a question for you. Our fathers, they worshiped on this mountain, right, Mount Gerizim. They worshiped there. They believed it was a holy place. But the Jews tell us that the only place to worship is in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. Who's right? So, of course, what she does is she says, I guess what you're doing. I got a different question over here because she does not want to deal with that. So she changes the subject and moves to a little theological question, which is really about worship. And it's not really about stylistic worship. It's more about uh, a theology question about worship, like where, where do we go to worship? Because the Samaritans didn't believe in the majority of the Old Testament. So they believed that everything that unfolded uh, in the first five books was from God and everything else was not. And they believed the holy and right place to worship was right there in Samaria on that mountain that was really significant to Jacob and his family. But if you continue to read through Scripture, you realize that Mount Zion becomes a really important place in biblical history. And that's where the temple is and that's where the Jews believe that they should worship. And so she says, which place is right? Try to shift Jesus' attention a little bit, if you will, saying semantically, okay, I hear what you're saying, but let's talk about something that's a little bit more not about me. And uh, so Jesus appeases that, and he says, look, here's the thing. You know, you Samaritans believe that this is the place you worship, but you worship a God you don't know. And the Jews, they worship on this mountain because salvation's coming from the Jews. But the truth is this, there'll be a time that's coming and actually has now come when neither place will matter. And when you worship spirit and truth, and these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And what Jesus is saying is, look, there's two main flaws in this line of thinking. One, you're worried about worshiping a God that you don't even know. You're talking about place, and you don't know the God that's standing in front of you. Salvation's coming from the line of the Jews, literally from the line of David, and he's pretty much standing in front of you. And a time has come, our time is coming, and it's actually here when neither mountain's going to matter. Because what's going to happen is that worship is going to become taking place in your heart and in your life. Speaking directly into, into him. So your semantics at the end of the day don't matter. Which is where we get hung up in all of our kind of conversation theologically. right? We want to argue who's right and wrong theologically so much. We want to spend so much of our time debating things that essentially are semantically driven. right? Who can do this? Who says that? What kind of music we like or don't like? Or who can dance or can't dance? Or all those kind of semantics. And really the core theology of what we typically believe unites us a lot more than it divides us. But she shifts the question. You kind of understand why. So Jesus replies like, she goes, so where's the right place to worship? And he replies by just saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're worried about where to worship and not who to worship. And a lot of us have spent our times doing that, our life doing that. We've hopped from church to church to church to church to church saying, entertain me. Come for a few weeks until I get disenchanted one week with what they don't have for fourth graders, and then I leave to go find it somewhere else. You know, we are a church that collects everybody else's problems. <laughs> There's really no other way to put it. It's disenchanted people. It's just what it is. Like, we have grown that way, and we don't care. We love it. But the reality is that most of you have left a church that was too big, too small, too liberal, too conservative, too this, too that, too whatever, weren't nice to you, was too nice to you, had donuts, didn't have donuts, had parking, didn't have near enough parking. 
And you say, oh, we finally found the answer here. In about six weeks, you're going to wake up and realize we've got a whole other set of problems. <laughs> We're asking a lot of the wrong questions, right? Where to worship, how to worship. Instead, Jesus is saying, look, the question really is who to worship. And he looks at her and he says, the time's coming and it's actually here. And she says, her last exchange she has is this, and then we're done. She says, okay, I hear you. Here's what I do know. A Messiah is coming, and he's going to answer all the hard questions. Because that's what the Samaritans and the Jews kind of both believed about the Messiah. They believed the Messiah was going to come and answer all the really hard questions. The Jews had really anchored in it politically, but the Samaritans had anchored in it theologically. Like, the Messiah is going to come and tell us that we were right all along and that we weren't bad, terrible people and that the Jews shouldn't have been ignoring us. That's what they're hoping for. And the Jews were hoping the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the political oppression of the Romans and set them up as a powerful nation again. And so she does not like Jesus' answer. And so she says, <clears throat> there's a Messiah that's going to come and he's going to answer all of our questions. And then Jesus' incredible response to her is this. I who speak to you am he which is the first time in Scripture we see Jesus declare his messianic nature. And it's to a Samaritan woman who is relegated to the shadows, who's got a really broken, messed up life. He doesn't stand in front of the Pharisees for the first declaration of himself as the Messiah and say, look what you're missing. Instead, with no one else around, in the middle of a kind of wooded side of a mountain with a woman who is broken and a mess, he looks at her and he says, I'm he. I am the source of your worship. And I am the source of life. I am the living water. Every struggle that you have is answered in me. And it's really a cool story if you want to go read it the rest of the week. She goes back to town. They bring the entire village over. It's just a nutty show. It's really cool. But it all begins with this one broken woman who's got a lot of issues and questions for this guy. And Jesus says, the answer is really who I am, and it's living water that takes place in me. Look, I don't know what you've walked through or what you've gone through or how bruised and battered your soul is or how frustrated you are at the world or at God or at anything else. But I can tell you most likely, if you're anything like me, you're much more like her than you want to care to admit. We've got a lot of questions for this God, and when he answers in the way that we don't like, then we've got a lot more or we want to change the subject. But we don't want to deal with the reality of what God is often speaking into our life, which is quit worshiping a God that you don't know. And realize that the God of the universe is standing in front of you in your presence, offering you life, like not just eternal life when we die, but true wellspring, leaping eternal life that begins in this very breath. And you're walking around like a bunch of dead people. And Jesus says, I who am speaking to you am life, living water, leaping a wellspring in your soul. If today you're sitting here and you're gathering this place and you are, <clears throat> disenchanted, you are passionless, you are frustrated, you are restless, you are peaceless. And welcome to the club. But here's the deal. The answer is real and it is right in front of you. Life in Christ, the promise of eternal life when we die, begins the moment you draw breath right this second. And Jesus tells you that it's a leaping to life that begins. The call to understand who God is through Scripture the redemptive nature and plan of God is played out through the entire Old and New Testament and the culmination of the person of Jesus Christ is the offer of salvation for every single one of us. And that salvation begins a process, a 
of becoming more and more like him as we follow him together. Jesus is not only the living water, he is eternal life. And he's standing right in our presence. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning just to hear from Courtney, to share some prayer time, to open up your word just in a simple way and just say, God, we need you. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, the truth is this woman, this Samaritan woman, is, is she's a lot like me. She's got a lot of questions for you and a lot of answers she doesn't want to hear, and a lot of fear, uh, a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment probably riddle her life like they riddle a lot of ours. Life's not easy. It's not, that's the understatement of the universe. It's hard to understand. She's got a lot of questions for why. Nobody gets out of it unscathed. Like it is hard, but it's a beautiful, amazing thing in Christ that you turn the ways of the world upside down, that you turn mourning into dancing, that you turn frustration into joy, that you turn weariness into endurance, that you turn sadness into leaping wellsprings of life. Lord, we're not relegated to whatever our story is. You are the reclaimer and redeemer of stories. Lord, as we would see if we kept through that passage, that woman no longer becomes defined by her story, but she becomes defined by the fact that she led a village to Jesus. We're not defined by our brokenness or by our broken story. You are a redeemer of all things. And so, God, as we close our time in worship, what I pray that we would encounter, the truth this morning is that you are the rewriter of stories. You are the anchor point for our souls. You are living water. There is no death in you. God, you are so, so good. And we trust you and believe that you are exactly who you say you are. That I who stand here and speak to you am here. You are life eternal. And so, God, allow us to draw from you today water that quenches the soul, quenches our fear and our anxiety and our thirst. And let us become satisfied in you and you alone. As we close our time, let us stand together and proclaim these truths. That Jesus, you are life eternal. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. Mm -hmm.